Macworld Podcast number 135 for November 5th, 2008, sponsored by Macworld Superguides. What you need to know. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. Now that the distractions of the U.S. elections are over and we have a new president-elect, many of us can turn our attention back to our favorite subject, Apple and its related and sometimes not-so-related technologies. In this episode of the Macworld Podcast, we dabble a bit more in the not-so-related areas of technology, looking first at Twitter and how it can be used for purposes other than announcing to the world that you've purchased a new pair of pants, and how recent developments in the media business are changing the way we watch TV. That look at Twitter comes in the form of my interview with the St. Paul Pioneer Press's technology writer, Julio Ojeda Zapata, who's ready to release his new book, Twitter Means Business. And our look at TV and technology is guided by Macworld Editorial Director Jason Snell and Senior Editor John Seth, who have respectively written articles about Netflix's Watch Instantly feature, which has recently come to the Mac, and Western Digital's $130 set-top media box, the WDTV HD Media Player. Before we get to those interviews, a little news and commentary. On such a momentous day, it's hard to think how to ignore Tuesday's events. Sure, we're a technology podcast, but what happens outside our world influences the one in which we spend a lot of time. And so I'd like to offer a couple of completely nonpartisan thoughts on technology and how it's influenced the political process in the last few years. We'll start with YouTube. 2006 saw YouTube come into its own when Senator George Allen, considered a shoe-in for re-election and a strong contender for the presidency, was sunk when his utterance of the slur macaca was captured at a rally and widely distributed via YouTube. In the past, you could get away with these kinds of things and then brush them off with a, ah, you must have misheard me. No longer. The ability to easily capture these moments with small camcorders and -and point-and-shoot cameras and then make them available to the world in a matter of minutes is incredibly powerful. It also makes smart politicians far more careful about what they say, knowing that anything that pops out of their mouths is going to be spread around later. Better or worse yet, depending, of course, on whether it's your ox being gored, with applications like iMovie and GarageBand, we can take these moments and turn them into something even more powerful by creating mashups of selected material. Just ask Howard Dean how much he appreciated having his infamous victory scream turned into a hip-hop track, and you get the idea. And then there's the ability to quickly process data via the Internet and offer instant polling results. This had a major impact on the presidential debates. In the past, each campaign's representatives would be backstage talking to reporters, telling them exactly how their candidate had trounced his or her opponent. May the best spin win. With instant polling results from people who actually watch these things rather than those who are paid to spin them, that spin becomes far less effective. And the power of political websites can't be discounted. While the mainstream media feels compelled to give equal time to both sides of an issue, regardless of how knuckle-headed one of these sides may be, websites that cater to a particular hue of the political spectrum have no such compunction. And increasingly, people, particularly younger people, are turning to these sites for their political news and opinions. And money. The Internet made it far easier for common folks to give a little bit of cash to their favorite candidate. And when they did that, they became far more invested in the results of the election. Say what you will about how candidates spend their money. If the results of this kind of easy-does-it-giving promotes a better-informed and enthusiastic electorate, I'm all for it. 
And of course, there's the negative stuff. The downside is that the internet provides even more ways for campaigns to slime their opponents. The upside is that campaigns have used the internet to quickly debunk false claims. Thanks to nearly instantaneous fact-checking of candidates' claims, swift-boating someone becomes far more difficult in the future, and that's to everyone's good. And finally, without expressing a particular preference, I think this election marks the end of candidates who can get away with brushing off computers and the internet, either describing the internet as a series of tubes or laughing off the notion of learning to work the internet like it was something just for kids. I understand that there are some people out there who wear their ignorance of the web as a badge of pride, but we've lived with technology long enough that such intentional ignorance now comes across as dangerously old-fashioned and out of touch. And, as I think the results have proven, it's not part of a winning strategy. And now I speak with Julio Ojeda Zapata about Twitter. I'm joined by St. Paul Pioneer Press technology writer Julio Ojeda Zapata, who's nearly ready to release his book about Twitter entitled Twitter Means Business. Given Twitter's increasing buzz and some of the misconceptions about it, I figured it was time to check in with someone who knows his tweets from his tweets. So thanks for joining me, Julio. Uh, I really uh, appreciate you having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, well, thanks. And I'm a big fan of your writing. Um, let's start with the basics for those who aren't familiar with Twitter. What exactly is Twitter? Uh, well, Twitter's a, a service that lets you post uh, text snippets, messages that can't exceed 140 characters. It's been compared to blogging in miniature. In fact, it's often called micro-blogging. It has el- elements of instant messaging and email as well because it's a great way to sort of communicate with with all your buddies you can blast out messages to all your friends and they're able to respond so it's a, it's a hybrid service and and it's in fact it's something completely new it takes elements of this and that and and creates a new experience that has become quite popular right now i think a lot of people who haven't used twitter question its usefulness thinking that it's largely a way for self-absorbed people to blather on about the minutia of their uneventful days for example they tell people hey i had bacon and eggs for breakfast which uh, thrills me not at all so certainly those kinds of tweets exist but what else can be found on twitter well i'll be the first to admit i i blather uh, quite a bit especially about things like uh, burritos and other uh, items that i'm fond of uh so the i'm guilty of blathering at times but uh Twitter is a serious tool in in some cases i'll I'll give you an example we're recording this on election day and my newspaper is is taking uh uh polling place reports from uh, Minnesota voters and uh, it's asking voters when they tweet you know put this code word in your tweet and that makes it easy to sort of follow all these reports as they're being filed so it's it's become a way to carry on uh, group conversations to sort of uh, achieve a water cooler effect where uh, where lots of people are sort of comparing notes on on important topics of the day. So, you know, at, t- at times it can have a very serious uh, purpose. Then as somebody who's on Twitter, how do you follow those threads and those tweets that are interesting like that rather than sort of being inundated with, um, you know, what I had for breakfast? It's, uh, well, in the case of uh, the election, uh, you know, here at, the, at my newspaper, uh we're asking people, you know, if you voted today, put this particular code word in your tweet. And then later, anybody who wants to see everything that is being said, 
you know, find all the tweets that have this code word MN votes, they can pull it up, pull it up in a search engine, and that's a handy way to sort of he- see history unfold. In fact, because you see all these people all using the code word, all reporting, you know, from from their uh, their voting experiences, and a, a group conversation ensues. There's a, a big uh, water cooler effect is created, and it's it's quite it's quite uh, it's quite exciting to watch. In fact, all right. Now, the title of your book, Twitter Means Business, suggests that Twitter can be useful for businesses. How is that? Well, uh, a lot of uh, internet savvy companies are sort of realizing that uh, there's a lot of people out there that in, that are in some cases talking about them. And so they're they're realizing, you know, if people are talking about me, about my company, about my product, you know, maybe I need to keep track of that and, you know, see if people are, gosh, you know, angry, angry with us uh, mm-hmm. about something we did. And, and if so, we can fix it. And in, uh, in some cases, companies are even getting on Twitter and joining the conversation and uh, uh, engaging in, in conversations with, with their customers. One, you know, one prominent example is Comcast. There's a, there's a guy at Comcast who's set up a, a Twitter monitoring team, and, he, uh, he, and they monitor the Twitterverse, as, it, as it's called, for signs of discontent. If somebody's you know, pissed off about their Comcast service and they say so on Twitter, they can spot it and contact that person and try to fix it. That, in fact, has happened to me. Uh, I, I was, uh, my, my Comcast internet connection was flaky one evening, and I was annoyed, and I said so on Twitter, as Twitter users are prone to do. And I'm not kidding. Five minutes later, my phone rang, and it was Frank Eliason of, of Comcast uh, you know, asking me, you know, gosh, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, you know, full disclosure, he and I had already talked for my book, so he, he kind of knew who I was. But, you know, he does that for, for, for just about anybody. You know, if you're pissed off about your Comcast service and he sees that, he'll, he'll get in touch and try to fix it for you. So are businesses just using Twitter as a defensive tool? I mean, how often do you go onto Twitter and say, gosh, Comcast is working really well today? The thing I discovered in my book was that businesses uh, are using comp- uh, using Twitter in a lot of different ways. Twitter is a very simple service, and therefore it's very malleable. It's very flexible. It can be adapted for a number of purposes. So companies are using it for to promote their products, to for customer service, for just relationship building. You know, if you if you uh, make a friend of your customer, that customer is less likely to abandon you. They're using it. Uh, a lot of companies are using it internally for communication among their workers. You know, you know, web savvy PR agencies in many cases are very uh, very Twitter centric. Everybody at the office has a Twitter account, and this is how they interact. This is very handy for companies that have people you know all around the country or uh, the world. It's, it's a great way for people in, within an organization to communicate. So, uh, you know, the lesson from my, my book is there is no one way for companies to use Twitter. There's, there's a million ways. It's, it's a very adaptable service. And uh, the, uh, in case study after case study, I've, you know, documented uh, how this service is, is highly, highly adaptable in a business sense. I admit that I've come to Twitter only recently, just in the last few months, and I have to say I'm confounded by the etiquette of it. I have people follow me, and I don't know, should I follow them or not follow them, or how do I read all their messages? So do you have any general advice about the etiquette of Twitter? Well, I uh, I apply different criteria. Like, for instance, that uh, I have uh, several accounts. One is related to my book, uh, and I follow any everybody who follows me because obviously I want to promote my book. Uh, I have a personal Twitter account, and I apply different criteria. In that case, for instance, I'll automatically follow anybody in my home state of Minnesota here, 
and I'll I'll uh, somewhat more selectively follow people in the technology world, in the media world. You know, people uh, that are in, already engaging in conversations that interest me. So, for my personal account, I'm a l- little more selective, mm-hmm. and and I also you know um, I'm a I'm a Twitter animal here, so I have I, I have a Pioneer Press Twitter account as well. You know, three accounts and three and counting so far, and uh, with the with the Pioneer Press account. Also, you know, anybody who expresses an interest in the account, I'll follow them automatically. So, you know, it, it's it's really a lot of people are super selective. They only want to follow and be followed by a very small group of people. Uh, and others, you know, go to the complete opposite extreme and, and, and literally have tens of thousands of followers and follow tens of thousands of people. And, you know, how they keep track of that, I have no idea, but uh, they do that. Okay, so you're also a news guy, and I understand that you use Twitter to help your paper during the recent Republican National Convention. So what part did Twitter play in your coverage? Um, well, my editor, I compliment my editor for coming up with the idea, not me. Uh, he, uh, he, he knew I was interested in Twitter, and he called me into his office one day and suggested, hey, hey we should use uh, Twitter uh, to sort of promote our coverage during the Republican National Convention. So his, his initial idea was, you know, just you know, flog our content. You know, promote ourselves in the Twitterverse, and and for the for the week that the convention was going on, I, I did that. But uh, our use of Twitter eh, during that event evolved. Uh, like for instance, police were raiding the homes of uh, of protesters. There was a lot of police activity going on, a lot of arrests, a lot of tear gassing, a lot of mayhem, and and very quickly, uh, Twitter evolved into a way of keeping track of that activity because a lot of the protesters, a lot of the organizers, the anarchists, as it were, were also using Twitter so we could sort of follow their activities literally block by block. In fact, I'll tell you something funny. Uh, In the newspaper business, you know, years ago, police scanners were very important. We used to, like, monitor chatter on the scanners. And I had uh, an epiphany. I was sitting at my desk one day. Uh, My iPhone was in the dock, was in its, its charging dock, uh, I had configured the iPhone to selectively uh, follow a number of, of, of crucial RNC-related uh, accounts, so that uh, so that their tweets would come in via instant messaging. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, via text messaging rather. And uh, my epiphany was: I was sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden, you know, this this thing was beeping and going off constantly, and it suddenly dawned on me: the damn iPhone is a police scanner for the 21st century. Ah. It was very. It was very. It was a very, uh, very surreal moment because I was uh, sort of reliving an earlier part of my career where I would. I was a police reporter listening to the police car, and then suddenly I was doing this again, but with an iPhone with information sort of coming in over the internet uh, via Twitter. So that was. It's, it was a very interesting experience, and, and and taught me a lot. Interesting. Now, although in your professional career you cover PCs as well as Macs, I know that in your personal life you're a Mac guy. So what kind of clients uh, for Twitter are out there for the Mac, and what are some of their strengths? Um, I've tried a number of them. Uh, There's Twirl, which is an Adobe Air program that runs on PCs and Macs. And I, I like that because it lets you juggle multiple accounts. So that I, I found that interesting. And in fact, during my RNC tweeting, it became a very valuable tool. There's a Twitterific, which uh, many Mac users are familiar with, which is very Mac-like. It has growl support, which uh, Twirl does not. Uh, and it has a very Mac-like feel, which I like. But um, 
I'm not I'm not really a Twitter app guy to be honest with you. I I vastly I'm in a minority I think, but I vastly prefer uh, using Twitter right in the web browser. Oh, I've got a lot really? of bookmarks set up, and mm-hmm. that's 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 kind of the way I like to do it. And it, it also impo- that helps me impose some discipline because I don't have Twitterific sort of going off constantly and mm-hmm. distracting me. Right, right. I I just get into Twitter if I if I if I choose to do so in the the browser, and that way I'm able to sort of concentrate on my work. Uh, you know, that's an excellent tip because I do have Twitterific and I have it going off all the time and I have to pull it all the way off the screen so I can see just a little corner of it. And then every 15 minutes or so, I drag the window over and look at it and scan to see if anything else is interesting there and then put it back again. Because you're right, if you just close the window, it's popping up constantly and then you get nothing done. So. Good and tip. I follow hundreds of people, so if yeah. I had uh, Twitterific running and the Grell uh, windows were, were popping up, I'd never get anything done because the, my computer would, would just be uh, besieging me. I, that just wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk Twitter and the iPhone and iPod Touch. There's several Twitter applications out there for these portable devices. So what particular advantages does Twitter on the run bring? Well, uh, to, uh, to go back to my example during the RNC, uh, Twitter v. Uh, text messaging is very handy, although it's it's best used you know with a select number of accounts, the ones that are mm-hmm. very important to you, because text messaging t- tends to be disruptive, sort of in your face. You don't want that. You don't want it to be going off constantly. Uh, there are just like on the Mac, there are apps, uh, Twitter apps. You can stick on the iPhone. There's uh, there, there's Twitterific and and, uh, and some others. But again, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but. Uh, the web experience works the best for me. There's mm-hmm. a there's a web app, as it were, called Halo H A H L O, which uh, I've been comparing it to the uh, you know the physical apps, the ones you install on the iPhone, and I, I find Halo to be vastly superior. It has a great interface. All the features I need are in there. Uh, the web interface is you know it's highly responsive. It, it's attractive. Um, it does does what I need. It has this weird thing where it. it Keeps making me log in all the time, which annoys me greatly. But other than that, Halo, Halo rocks. It, I, I just love that thing. I'll give it a try. One mobile app that I do like um, is Twinkle, and largely because of the location feature. Uh, I think it's nice that it knows where I am, and it can give me all the tweets within a certain, uh, you know, a mile or two of me. So if there's something very local happening. Uh, for example, you know, your convention or, or hear wildfires, I can hear from people directly around me what their experience is and then use that information for other purposes. And um, I've been using the uh, the Android-based G1 phone from T-Mobile, and uh, that uh, that device is mirroring the iPhone in that a number of uh, Twitter clients like Twitly and uh, uh, TwitDroid are, are sort of coming on the scene. And, uh, in fact, I, I was voting today, and I was – Tweeting the whole thing as I as I voted, and I was doing that on a, on an Android phone with with the new Twitly. That w- that was kind of fun. I was kind of kind of flailing away on the on the physical keyboard uh, as I did my civic duty, which was very interesting. Very well. This is completely off the subject, but just before we close, how is that Android phone? Um, I uh, there are a couple of things about me you should know. I'm a big Google guy, so if you give me hand me a phone that has Google baked into it, uh, I love that. Yeah. I I love the physical keyboard. Uh, using the virtual keyboard on the iPhone drives me absolutely insane. I just hate it. Um, but you know, given you know, given a choice, given uh, if I were going to choose between the two devices, yeah, Apple is second to none in fit and finish and just sheer elegance and beauty it's just a, a better 
executed device overall, the iPhone is just yeah, I would I would I would choose it hands down over the Android phone. But I, I look forward to, to seeing uh, you know future devices with the Android operating system built in, and it's good to see competition in this field. Cool, very interesting. Okay, so where can our listeners go for more information about you and Twitter? Uh, well, uh, my book you, you can uh, you can find out about my book at uh, twitin.biz. That's t w i t i n dot b i z. And uh, I also uh, write uh, for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, so twincities.com slash tech test drive. And then my blog is at yourtechweblog.com. And do you want to give out your Twitter handle? J-O-J-E-D-A. Excellent. I look forward to hearing from, uh, from folks. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for joining me, Julio. Uh, I enjoyed it. Before Jason Snell, John, Seth, and I talk TV... A word about Macworld Super Guides. You spend every possible waking moment browsing Macworld.com, and when you find that impossible, you crouch down with the latest issue of Macworld Magazine. But there are those times when you want to dive deep into a particular subject. Digital music and video, Leopard, digital photography, Mac security, or Mac basics, for example. Where to go? Macworld Super Guides. Macworld Superguides pack dozens of helpful pages available as DRM-free PDF files on CD-ROM or as printed books. Macworld Podcast listeners get a special discount on any Superguide by going to www.macworld.com slash superguide hyphen offer. Check out the brand new Macworld Mac Security Superguide, a handy 84-page volume where we've collected everything you need to know to keep yourself safe and secure from the data on your hard drive to the data you send over the Internet. With our special offer link, you can have the PDF version of this invaluable guide for just $6.99. Macworld Superguides, what you need to know. And now Jason Snell, John Seff, and I talk TV and the Mac. I'm speaking with Macworld Editorial Director Jason Snell and Senior Editor John Seff, and the subject is television and how to get the kind of modern media we find on our Macs and the web onto that television. Jason recently described his experience with Netflix Instant Watching Service, and John has even more recently taken a first look at Western Digital's WDTV. Say hello, boys. Hello. Hello, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, let's start with you. Um, while it hasn't given up its disk in the mail service, Netflix has made some interesting moves of late in the streaming content area. Can you describe what they've done? Yeah, well, Netflix, back in January of 2007, introduced this concept of instant watching, where basically um, it put a fraction of its library up on the Internet for viewing, except at the time you had to be using Internet Explorer on Windows. Um, it's come a long way since then. They have been rolling out this year hardware boxes, not actually from Netflix, but different hardware manufacturers have integrated Netflix instant viewing capability in their boxes. The most notable one is from Roku. It's a $99 box that I reviewed for Macworld that all it does is play those Netflix instant viewing um, movies and TV shows on your TV. And it's going to be embedded in a lot of devices. There's, a, uh, I, I guess, a Toshiba Blu-ray DVD player. No, not Toshiba. It's a... Uh, John, do you remember who makes that that DVD player? Blu-ray, yeah, maybe, maybe LG or Toshiba. Yeah. I forget who makes that. Yeah, it's that it's, one. it's a it's a Blu-ray DVD player that there actually is going to be a software update that makes it 
compatible with instant watching for Netflix. Um, and then the big news for Mac users is this week they opened a public beta. Last week I got a preview of it, of a Mac version of instant viewing where uh, basically you bring up your web browser and you go to Netflix. And if you've got this enabled, you'll see that a bunch of movies and TV shows on there have a play button now. And you can actually play over the Internet. And for all but I think the cheapest Netflix um, subscription, you have an unlimited amount of time to watch this stuff. Now, the biggest piece of criticism I hear about Netflix instant watching is that the selection isn't very good. And that's true. Uh, It's a lot of older stuff, um, documentaries, TV shows. It's not stuff that is just out on DVD. Um, There's some stuff that's in the pay cable window because they have a deal with stars now where movies from stars are part of the deal. Um, you know, Netflix would like it to be everything, but it's not. It's it comes as part of your Netflix subscription. So really, what you're doing is you're getting the discs in the mail, and that's how you're going to get your new releases. But that subscription is supplemented with a whole bunch of stuff that you can stream whenever you want. And I can tell you, having had this uh, Roku Netflix box for several months now, I actually do use it a lot. My wife uses it a lot, um, mostly for old movies and uh, TV shows. Lots of TV shows. Um, that are available this way. And unlike with Netflix where you order a disc and you get three episodes and you watch them and you send it back, with the Netflix player and instant watching, you can actually just sit there and go through one after another after another and they all just come down over your internet connection. Yeah, the other <laughs> thing I was going to point out is that, as Jason mentioned in his uh, write-up, um, that it is Intel Max only. Right, right. It should be said. It uses Silverlight from Microsoft, and this is uh, one of the rare examples of uh, DRM technology uh, to manage uh, copy protection of, of digital media that uh, is not part of the Apple platform but is running on uh, Mac. And the way they do it is it's Microsoft's Silverlight platform, and it's their web browser plugin, and that plug-in only runs on Intel-based Macs. So this is instant viewing for Intel Macs only. Right. So how's the quality of this? Is it, I mean, clearly it's not going to be something like you're going to get on a DVD, but is it watchable? It's watchable. It varies. Um, if you've got a better connection, you're going to find that some of the stuff looks pretty good. Um, new re- the Not new releases, but the sort of stars releases, they look pretty good. Um, some of the older stuff um, looks really bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention Doctor Who here, the classic Doctor Who, um, which didn't look good to begin with, <laughs> and um, whatever they did to encode those, it, it looks terrible. Um, also, if you have a bad connection, have a slow connection, it scales down the bit the bit rate, and you're gonna get um, lower quality. But you know, it's not gonna be HD quality. It's gonna be more like VCR quality. But you get used to it. Um, it, it doesn't look terrible. It it mostly just looks a little bit soft. And for some things, it looks perfectly good. I, there are a few things I've tried to play and I found unwatchable. But generally, um, the stuff looks okay. It's not going to confuse anybody into thinking that it's high def. But it doesn't look it doesn't look bad on a computer screen. It looks okay, and on a TV screen, I've got an HD TV, and it doesn't look like HD, but it doesn't look bad. I've watched. I think I rewatched the entire first season of Thirty Rock on Netflix instant watching, and uh, you know, it was enjoyable. John, give us a lowdown on the WDTV. So I, I believe it's its long official um, title is the WDTV HD Media Player uh, from Western Digital, and this is a device that lists for one hundred thirty dollars. And what it does is it lets you take USB hard drives or uh, camera camcorder or any other USB based mass storage device that has video, audio, and photo content on it, 
and connect that to the WDTV, and then you connect the device itself to a television, and it lets you play that media on your TV. Okay, so what's the interface like for that? Um, the So the h- hardware-wise, there are two USB ports on the WDTV, so you can plug in up to two USB drives at one time, and then you have either an HDMI connection to connect to an HDTV and, or a uh, composite um, video and audio signal. And there's also an optical digital audio output if you're connecting to a surround sound system for multi-channel output. Once, you, once you've connected that to your TV, uh, there's a remote control that comes with it, and there's an on-screen interface display, and it's you know like an Apple TV type display, but it's more simple and uh, not not as well designed, but you know it does the trick. It lets you choose the media that you want, and there are uh, lots of different options for um, sorting things by so the newest things added, or you can search by by date. You can actually search for particular file names, um, so you can find everything that's on those um, USB drives. All right. So when you're loading this thing, is this kind of like a like a dumb MP3 player where you just put everything in the root level and it shows up within hierarchies that way? Yeah, you can put media onto your USB drives um, either in folders or just onto the hard drive. I actually tried both. I created uh, video, audio, and um, and uh, photo folders and put some content in those. But then I also just put some content on the root level of the hard drive that I was using, and it sees everything as if it were just all in there. You can search by folder. So if you want to make a folder that's uh, vacation photos from last summer, you can do that, and then you can only choose that particular one and do a slideshow from those photos, for example. Uh, but what, what makes it really interesting is that it has support for HD video up to 1080p, and it supports a lot of different video and audio formats. So it's a lot more... Uh, extensible, I guess you would say, than than an Apple TV, because you know, as you know, an Apple TV doesn't support uh, 1080p resolution, and it also doesn't support as many video formats. This can play back MPEG one, two, four. It can do Windows Media nine, uh, AVI files, H two six four, Matroska video, which is those MKV files that can encapsulate, you know, a a high definition video signal with a multi-channel audio signal. So it really offers you uh, a lot of different ways to play video. Can it see the metadata in there, or do you actually have to label things like, no, this is episode one, this is two, this is three, this is four? I believe, if, I believe if there's metadata, um, you know, if you've tagged the files mm-hmm. already, I believe it can read that. But one, one thing to point out is that it cannot work with any protected content. So um, it will not play back anything you purchase from the iTunes store, videos or audio and it won't work with Amazon Unbox or any of those other ones that are protected content because it, it can't. It doesn't have any, you know, DRM understanding. So it, it, it basically can take uh, you know, unencrypted files that you have and play those back. Now presumably Western Digital would like you to use their hard drives for this, but do you have to do anything special to use a hard drive? Can you use a key drive, for example, or do you have to format the drive a particular way? I, I didn't try a, a, a USB stick. Um, my guess would be that it would probably be too slow to feed the, the data that you would need. But mm-hmm. um, they, they do recommend, and it's designed to work with their My Passport um, hard drives, their portable hard drives, and the 
when you buy the kit, it actually comes with a stand that holds that hard drive, so you can have it right next to there. But uh, it, it should work with pretty much any USB drive. And um, when when I got a drive from Western Digital, it was formatted as a, uh, a Windows volume, which worked just fine. Um, formatting as a Mac OS X extended journaled volume mm-hmm. gave me an error message. It said it should still play, but I couldn't get it to dismiss that error message. So then I reformatted the drive as just plain old Mac OS extended. And with that, I was able to play back. Um, content that was able to read it just fine. All right, so how does it look? The the video quality looks pretty good. You know, the, the interface can be a little sluggish, and getting through the, the various menus can take a little time. But uh, I was able to play back some 1080p clips on my 1080p um, Sharp Aquos TV that I have at home, and things looked pretty good. I, I did see some people asking questions on our forums about um, the colors, uh, one person was saying that they had some issue with, you know, pinkish colors and um, whether that uh, is a uh, an output question with their particular TV or what, I'm not sure. But uh, I was pretty impressed with the quality and it looked really good. Oh, okay. Now, through all this, we've got, we've got Roku, we've got Netflix, TiVo's now with Netflix as well. Um, we've got this kind of device from Western Digital. And in the meantime, there's Apple sort of sitting on the Apple TV and I guess in the last – Financial call. Apple or Steve Jobs once again said, uh, "No, it's no, still it's a hobby. It's 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 a hobby again. You know, when it wasn't a hobby, and now it is a hobby again. What's happening with Apple in all this? Well, I'm not sure whether Apple thinks that it's still a hobby in the sense of their product or in the sense of every product. Um, Steve Jobs seemed to express some skepticism about the entire category, and I think he was talking a little bit about the economy as a part of that and, and just skepticism in general. But sometimes they do that, and what they're really doing is playing, uh, playing rope-a-dope, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what they're really, they're really doing is saying, well, we don't think it's anything because our new thing doesn't come out for a little while, and then we'll have something. Um, you know, the Apple TV has been pretty static. They haven't done a lot with it. They've got um, – They've got the update that happened a while ago for 2.0. They had the 2.1 update where they made a few minor changes. And, uh, and uh, the most recent update that added some HD and iTunes support, which was really already there. It just talks to the mm-hmm. HD downloads that are available from uh, the iTunes store now. Um, so there's not a lot there right now. I mean, the, the hardware is – the current Apple TV hardware is capable of really nothing more than 720p. So as an HD source, um, they would probably need a hardware update. Um, but there are formats that they could support that Apple just isn't interested in supporting because as far as Apple's concerned, the Apple TV is really about content Apple has approved, and that means iTunes Store content and podcasts, really. Which is not to say that we don't use it for other things. I think all of us use the Apple TV for, for all sorts of things, but you have to get it in the right format. You have to do H.264, and then you know you can convert everything. I mean, I, I believe we all have Apple TVs with access to DVDs that we own that we've converted into Apple TV format, and it's very convenient for that. It's just that you've got to find the software to do it. You've got to use Handbrake uh, to get it down into the right format, which isn't something – Handbrake isn't a, uh, a piece of software that a lot of people even know about. Right, right. Well, and speaking of getting other material on there, uh, could we see a show of hands of the number of people in the room who have hacked their Apple TVs to play other things? Well, I will raise my hand. My hand is not raised yet, but it's sort of halfway up because <laughs> he's, he's I, I'm planning on it. Yeah. 
Uh, mine is halfway up because I've done it and then I I took it off, but I'm going to put it back on again. So maybe I'm three quarters of the way up. So I just did, did it last week. All right. Well, describe the experience. Well, I was reading about there's this new um, sort of social networking slash video um, sharing thing called Foxy. It's a uh, the, it's a piece of software. It's a website. Um, and the first version of Boxy came out, and it runs on OS X, but it also runs on Apple TV. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How does that work? And, and what actually caught my eye was that Boxy plays – Boxy does some intelligent things about attaching to other internet video streams. So it plays uh, clips from CBS and Comedy Central and from Hulu, uh, which I, I was kind of intrigued by because Apple TV doesn't support anything like that. And Hulu, you can watch a lot of the same things that you'd buy on – on iTunes for one ninety nine for free as long as you watch a minute maybe of commercials along with it. So it turns out there is this piece of software called ATV USB Creator and you download it and you run it. And what it does is it goes over the internet and downloads a bunch of uh, binaries from various places on the internet and loads them all up on a flash drive, a USB stick. It's got to be 512 megabytes or larger, and I had happened to have a two gig stick at my house, so I formatted it Mac format, ran ATV USB Creator, um, and it was surprising how easy it was. You unplug your Apple TV, plug it in, plug the stick into the USB port on the back of the Apple TV, plug in your Apple TV, and within a matter of about 30 seconds. It puts up a, uh, a bunch of command line kind of gibberish, and at the bottom it says, "Okay, now disconnect the USB thing and plug the Apple TV back in." So that's what I did. I unplugged it, took off the USB thing, plugged it back in. That was literally all I had to do for the hacking part of the process. It reboots, it works fine, but there's a new menu, which is this boxy XBMC menu, and then from there you you run. The second part of the process is basically you update those programs to the latest version, and then I think you restart the Apple TV one more time. Um, but it did get to the point where after about 15 minutes of fiddling around, I was I had essentially left the Apple TV interface behind and entered this Boxy mode, which is the alpha version of their Boxy software, and I was able to watch a video from Hulu.com on my on my Apple TV. Yeah, how did it look? You know, it, not great. It, it looked uh, worse than the Netflix instant watching experience, let's okay. say. Um, it is an alpha. Um, they are struggling with essentially Flash playback, which um, has some issues. Flash doesn't play back as smoothly as Silverlight, actually, it mm-hmm. turns out. Um, but it, it looked promising. And um, in addition to that, it plays back all those kind of random formats that John mentioned. It won't do beyond... Uh, it won't do HD content very well, again, because of the Apple TV hardware, but it will play back DivX files and Matroska video files and all sorts of other kind of wacky random video file formats that you may find spread across the uh, the Internet. Yeah, I've I've talked to a few people who've done these kind of things, and they're very happy with it. I mean, it's, as much as they like their Apple TVs to begin with, once they're hacked, they find that they can play a lot of files that they couldn't before, which is they just want the Apple TV to be a more flexible device, and this is one way to do it. Right. And Chris, as you mentioned that you uh, had installed this stuff before and then you went back. So if something doesn't work out and you don't like how it's hap- working, you can just um, restore your Apple TV to factory settings and be, be back to square one. 
Exactly. This is just like hacking or jailbreaking a phone or an iPhone or an iPod Touch. If it doesn't work out, restore it. It's back to normal, and and then you know you've got your basically your default player back again. And the next time you update your software on your Apple TV, it may wipe out the uh, the hack that you've installed. Well, right. It is true that um, whenever you talk about hacking anything, it can be a little bit scary. But um, this isn't these Apple TV hacks don't do anything to the firmware. It's really just to the software on the drive. And if you you can actually hold down a couple of buttons on that remote, and it'll it'll do a safe restore of your Apple TV system. And at that point, the hacks are wiped away. So right. um, it, it's not as dangerous as you might think. Okay, well, I'd like to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture now. And, and Jason, you've been writing about TV for ages, uh, sort of in one of your yes. other lives. And I'm just interested from a delivery and content point of view, what does this say about our TV watching habits? And what is television doing to address these changing habits? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I, I think what it says about our TV watching habits is that people – this revolution that really started when TiVo arrived has has broken through where people don't want to watch TV in the way that we all used to, which was be at, a, be at a certain place at a certain time on a certain channel and you can watch TV. I think now people want to watch TV on their own schedules and they'll still watch at a certain time for an event, but um, like at the Super Bowl or something. But right. um, otherwise, they want flexibility and freedom. And for a while – the TV networks, and they all seem to be fighting that. And it seems like in the last few years they've realized they can't fight it and they need to embrace it. And so we've seen Hulu and we've seen iTunes and we've seen you know individual network websites with their own streaming systems. And, and um, we've seen a lot of that different stuff. And, and now you can watch uh, over the Internet and you can take it on your iPhone and watch it on your iPod and watch it on your computer. And – the good thing about that is that's that really does seem to be where we're headed with everything is watch what you want when you want it. Um, some of it you'll have to pay for. Some of it you'll have to watch with ads. And But, you know, you, that people will be able to make those decisions, which I think is great. I, I was realizing the other day that um, MSNBC, I think, I don't know if a lot of other networks are doing this. Um, I think CBS might be doing it with the evening news. But MSNBC has taken a couple of their shows, the uh, Keith Olbermann show and the Rachel Maddow show. And th- those are both available as video podcasts same day. And I think they're doing that with the Brian Williams uh, uh, half-hour news report on NBC as well. And that means you can watch these shows the day that they air, hours after they air, um, for free on the internet, on your computer, or even via podcast. So you could have not have cable, but if you've got the internet, you could be watching new shows and lots of stuff absolutely free um, just using the internet. And that's, that's pretty remarkable that, that a, a big network especially would go to the point of just saying, we give up, we're going to podcast everything. That's, uh, that's huge. So things are really changing, and I think it's good because I think we all – I mean the three of us here are talking. We all want to uh, uh, watch our videos the way we want when we want it. And if we want to watch a DVD when we're in the car with an iPod, we want to be able to do that. And if you know that, that freedom should be there for us. And, and more and more, the networks and the movie studios seem to be saying, yeah, you're right. You should. And they're letting us do it. I would think that would scare the pants off the cable and the satellite companies. I guess, except – I mean a lot of those cable and satellite companies are the same companies, right? And, yeah. and, and in many ways it's just a I, – I guess, I guess the cable the, – the actual cable and satellite providers might be worried. But you know, the cable providers are also in the internet business. 
So in some ways, if they end up selling you internet and you get your TV over the internet instead of over their cable, you're still getting it over them. And satellite is a little bit trickier, but satellite, a lot of those guys have deals with um, with DSL providers to do a bundle. And I mean, it is it is a little bit scary. Um, fortunately, technology advances. I mean, HD is a lot harder to do over the internet than mm-hmm. it is to do over a satellite or a cable system. And presumably when broadband speeds up and HD is easier to do, they'll find some other thing that's hard to do, you know, multiple streams or multiple angles or who knows what they'll come up with. Um, or they'll convert some of their bandwidth to doing more internet stuff instead or more on-demand stuff and do it that way. I mean, they'll, they'll adapt. Having a big pipe that you can fill a lot of data, flow a lot of data through and have it go to everywhere in the country um, is a pretty powerful thing to have, whether it's TV or internet that's going across it. And so a brighter and perhaps more a la carte future awaits. You can find Jason and John's articles on Macworld.com, and I'll provide links in the show notes to those and other TV-centric articles we've published lately. Thanks for being here, fellas. Yeah, we can go back to watching TV now. (laughs) Go to sleep. All right, thanks a lot. And now, back to me. Thanks, me. That wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Macworld Superguides, what you need to know. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a discount on any superguide by going to www.macworld.com slash superguide hyphen offer. I'd like to thank Julio Ojeda Zapata, Jason Snell, John Seth, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.